Have you heard? I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, after writing a book together, co-hosting many episodes of this podcast and writing a fair number of op-eds, we just took our first trip together. And I'm sure listeners want to know, how did it go? (laughs) Cabo is beautiful this time of year. Uh, I didn't expect to see as many whales as we did. So that was was great. The sightseeing tour was fun and uh, the food was okay. We did not go to Cabo. We went to Atlanta <laughs> to spend some time with superintendents. Yep, yep. Uh, no, it was good. I uh, I gotta say, my favorite part of the trip was when you were texting me on the airplane and asking me where I was, and uh, and I was telling you that I was many many rows ahead of you on the airplane but it turned out we weren't even on the same airplane i still feel like somehow you engineered that and it's like actually a very (laughs) fitting metaphor for the trip (laughs) i kept i kept worrying that you were going to show up with a couple of headphones that shared you know the same uh input switch or whatever that's called uh so that we could watch the same movie together on the airplane so yeah i uh I flew Delta instead of JetBlue. Yeah, that was pretty much it. That uh, Here I was looking forward, like after all this time, Jack and I, we're just going to have some quality time to just hang out. <laughs> and and somehow, you know what, like you're not on the plane with me. You managed to leave early. <laughs> we had fun. We, we took a tour of the Carter Center together. We learned about Jimmy Carter's early life. We learned, we learned a lot about his early life. Yeah. Well, anyway, I think we better move ahead. <laughs> so, Jack, this this episode is actually your very favorite time of year. It's my favorite time of year. Oh, boy, if listeners could see how my eyes just lit up, uh, we are about to hear from the winners of our graduate student research contest. And for those who are unfamiliar, you know, like, shame on you, go back into the archive and listen to the episodes with previous winners. Um, We've had some fabulous episodes uh, featuring graduate students. And, uh, you know, it's always my hope that graduate students who listen to this show I get excited and think like, you know, oh, maybe I can be on this. And you can. Uh, so we'll be sending out all the contest information in not too long. Uh, we'll be doing, gosh, I don't know, fifth annual, something like that, uh, version of the contest. Um, and it's just so cool to see what um, emerging scholars are really interested in, right? Um, they often are pushing boundaries. They're often trying new methodologies. They're often seeing the world a little differently than their, you know, the, their musty elder counterparts like me. The other thing that's been so satisfying to see is our previous winners and runners up really soar in their post-contest lives. And I'm thinking of one in particular who I just read about in the pages of the Boston Globe this week. Oh, you're uh, thinking about Patrick. <laughs> 
No, I am thinking... No, really? There was another one? Well, this is amazing. Um, <sighs> so teachers in two Massachusetts districts recently went on strike, and boy, was the Boston Globe trying really hard to pin some potential learning loss on them, and they reached out to former contest runner-up Mimi Lyons, and and Mimi gently informed them that that teacher strikes often produce gains for students because of what teachers win at the bargaining table. And I, I just chuckled as I read that. Uh, I was just reading something uh, about Patrick Conway, uh, our most recent winner prior to now, um, who now has a center uh, at Boston College um, and who continues to churn out exciting research. So potential contest entrants, keep that in mind. You could not only win our graduate student research contest, but go on to great fame in the afterlife. Great fame, tremendous fame, accolades, um, uh, just a kind of legendary status. I, I cannot oversell this. Now to our winners, Annie Gensterbloom, Ariel Bertrand, and Sandy Frost-Waldron are PhD students in the Education Policy Program at Michigan State. And the research project started in the way that great research often does. As Ariel explains, they saw something happening around them that they hadn't seen before. We started noticing how these conversations about first the 1619 project were morphing into this greater debate over critical race theory and just how it was spreading really widely and was something that we hadn't really seen with history curriculum. And that's how we started looking into the elite statements about the bills that were getting passed across the country. Then it just kept getting bigger. <laughs> And as the researchers track the development of critical race theory bans as they spread across the U.S., they were also keeping a watch on the situation closer to home. Annie says that starting in the summer of 2021, school board battles began to erupt in some Michigan communities that seem to have little in common. In Michigan, so far, we've seen like some counties have really big problems with it. Traverse City, Michigan had a kind of some explosive board meetings. Ypsilanti, Michigan had an explosive board meeting and so did Grand Ledge. All of them are very different towns, actually, demographically, geographically. They're in really different areas of Michigan, but they all had these kind of like explosive meetings about critical race theory and diversity, equity and inclusion. All three schools had instances where they tried to incorporate a D. EI program or team into their school system. And there was pushback from parents talking about is critical race theory being taught? Like, what is this? And so that's when those explosive board meetings happened in like June and July of 2021. There's one more thing you need to know about our prize-winning research team. Annie, Ariel, and Sandy use an approach called narrative policy analysis. Essentially, they take the tools that are often applied to literature and put them to work in order to understand policy debates. And as Ariel explains, the framework presented an ideal mechanism to make sense of a powerful narrative that seemed to come out of nowhere. 
the narrative policy framework really looks to see how stories affect the policymaking process. And so they look at narratives in the way that like humans are really storytelling people from looking on social media to talking with our family to watching the news. It's all told in stories. And so they really believe that it's stories that are the center of influencing policy because it's really grabs at you and grabs at your emotions much more than, say, just seeing a statistical fact. When we look at this with critical race theory, no matter how false these claims be, whether it's happening or not, hearing these stories about seven-year-olds being told to hate the United States really grabs at people much more than this factual statement that critical race theory is a concept that's taught in graduate level classes, right? So it's these stories that really hook people and they look to see how heroes and villains and victims are actually used in the policy process. So like with critical race theory, that's often the villain, right? And we can see how these different narrative elements are being used across states and then how in different states it's getting used more and how hearing more of these narrative elements actually influences people's policy opinions. In other words, in order to understand the power of the anti-CRT narrative, the researchers approached it like a work of fiction. Here's Sandy on what that looked like. We looked at who was the hero, who was being the savior and fixing the problem, who was the victim, who is being harmed, who is the villain. And then we also looked at then the plots, the settings, where the harm was happening, and then the policy solutions or the morals of the story. And what we did was we didn't just identify that there was a plot and a story going through, which is what a lot of narrative analysis does. We picked out based on our readings and our inductive skills, what those specific plots could be, what those specific characters, who they were, so that we could really kind of piece together these different storylines. Now, while you may not be familiar with narrative policy analysis, you probably learned to do something similar in English class back in the day. When the team broke down the anti-CRT narrative into its constituent parts, things like plot, setting, characters, something immediately stood out. We saw, interestingly, across states, a lot of consistency. So we're really seeing that this is very nationalized. It's not just cherry picking at a local level to see what fits best. But what we did see in the plot, especially, was how the harm was done was what was catching on. And what we saw in over 90% of the documents we looked at was that indoctrinating children, that exact phrase, was really powerful. The word indoctrinating just has such a strong visceral reaction <laughs> that it really linked with that. And it linked children in there really acutely. And while the anti-CRT narrative may have seemed new when it burst onto the scene in that summer of 2021, the deeper story it told was at once familiar and very compelling. We're talking about kids, right? And we're talking about children. And there's a lot of historical and symbolic meaning behind children. Some theorists talk about them being like dependents. We need to take care of them. We need to protect them. We need to keep them safe. So it's really easy if someone paints a picture where children are being harmed to really start to feel emotionally tied to that and responsible as adults. If you're a parent, for sure, if you're an educator, but even if you're just an adult in the community, you worry about the future of the country through children. And there's just this really strong pull of, we need to protect this. So when you start talking about harm, or you can tell a story about one place and it's not happening here. We saw many states that said, well, it's, it's not happening here. 
but we need to pass a law to ban CRT just in case so it doesn't. There was another element that they determined made the anti-CRT narrative so effective. Annie says that it came with its own call to action, one that evolved as legislators across the country began to enact limits on what educators could teach and talk about. These parents, there's a serious call to action, not only for parents, but all concerned citizens. You see parent groups organizing like crazy so fast, right? Because kids are in danger. They're worried about the future of their children. And if the children are being harmed, then parents have, they have to step in. It is their duty. It is their right. Some bills aren't being passed to ban CRT outright, but bills are evolving to now say parents have more rights. They have more control now in seeing curriculum. And so that's even been like a little bit of an evolution over the last two years as like now we're seeing a really big push for parents' rights and transparency in curriculum with public schools. Finally, even as anti-CRT fever took hold across the country, it went virtually unanswered by teachers, scholars, and public education advocates. And Ariel says that that only gave the narrative more traction. I think that the right was also incredibly successful because they were able to make this narrative about children getting harmed really quickly and start spreading it really quickly before school boards and teachers and even policy scholars really knew what critical race theory really was if it wasn't something that they studied or focused on, right? And so while the right had this really, really powerful narrative about children getting harmed in schools, the left and school boards and everybody was like, we don't teach this and we don't know what you're talking about, which isn't a really powerful counter narrative, right? So I think that that's also a big reason why it was able to spread so quickly. And the right and these parent groups were already armed with responses to we don't teach this, which was to say that the left has infiltrated our schools and they know that they teach this and don't believe them because they're being purposefully deceitful to you. So it was really hard for schools who were so caught off guard by this to have any sort of response. Jennifer and I get asked a lot to comment on the present so-called parental rights movement, including, you know, CRT bans. And I often get tapped to say something about, you know, how this is either in line or not in line with historical precedent. And so, you know, both of us have often talked about, well, there are parallels with the Red Scare or with, you know, teacher witch hunts trying to root out uh, LGBTQ plus teachers from classrooms. But if it were that simple, if it were, you know, just a matter of looking at the historical blueprint and then learning the lessons of how to gin up a conspiracy that is going to get your base fired up, then, then I think people would be doing that all the time. And so I'm just wondering why this was particularly effective. And I know that there were elements of the anti-CRT narrative that were more successful than others and elements that like didn't really penetrate public consciousness or resonate with them. And I just love to hear you talk a little bit about like, what does that tell us, right? That, that some parts of this conspiracy narrative, this narrative that is in line with some historical tropes, some parts were more effective than others. And what do we learn from that? There's this destruction of American values that where our values are eroding. The one that came up the most often was that we should judge people by their character, not by the color of their skin, really evoking Martin Luther King Jr. and the I Have a Dream speech. 
erosion of values is a concern. There's this concern that you're actually going to harm the country and the establishment of the U.S. And then there's also, Ariel mentioned this concept, the liberal side of politics is taking over. They use the word Marxist a lot <laughs> when they start to talk about this left side taking over. This is a Marxist idea. But we see that happening in less than 50 percent of the documents. Sandy says that the group saw a big difference between what ended up being essentially secondary messaging and the story that made the most impact, that kids were being indoctrinated. Those weren't as common, they weren't as pervasive, and they weren't quite as strong as this indoctrinating children. And we really see that having kind of three elements. Um, One is teaching children to be racist, which is something that sounds just horrible when you say it out loud, right? Like, why would we teach children to be racist? The other was that children are being taught to feel bad. And that was particularly white children, even if it wasn't explicitly stated. A lot of the ways that was framed was around guilt about past actions and feeling shame because of how others were treated by your group. And then we also saw that there was this focus on being oppressor-oppressed language and that those labels were harmful. So the narrative really started to focus in on these key words that had strong reactions and linked into America's real struggle with race over our history and really brought on some strong push for that narrative. Okay, so you've gotten a crash course in narrative policy analysis. You're getting a sense of why the anti-CRT narrative took off the way it did and why some parts of the story proved more effective than others. But that's only part of why the team claimed the top prize in this year's Have You Heard Graduate Student Research Contest. Annie, Sandy, and Ariel also conducted extensive polling to try to measure the frequency and resonance of this narrative among the public. September and October of 2021, kind of right on the heels of when this narrative was really spreading across the country, we asked 1,500 Michiganders how often they had heard these popularized statements about critical race theory that we learned from looking at these elite statements. And so we had 11 different statements that were pretty popular, like that CRT indoctrinates children, that CRT teaches children to hate the United States, things like that. And we were curious what the relationship was between how much people reported hearing these narratives and how this had a relationship with how likely they were to support a ban and how this might actually spill over into their other beliefs about local schools. For example, we found that a person who has heard all of the narratives is about 48 percentage points more likely to support a ban on critical race theory compared to somebody who has heard none of the narratives. This opportunity to assess the impact of a narrative in live time is one that scholars rarely get, especially scholars of education policy. We got to ask people how often they had heard a lot of these popularized statements by Republicans on advocating for the CRT ban. And usually it's really hard to ask people how much they've heard statements about policy because they've been going around for years. They get really, depending on where you are, it might get emphasized more or less or be different based on the context. But here we saw this like incredibly nationalized thing when usually school politics are very local. And so we got to ask people how much they'd heard of these these statements, which gave us this really cool opportunity to see how that had a relationship with how much they support this CRT ban and how much this is changing your normal trust in local schools. 
Then they looked at the larger impact that all of this messaging was having on respondents' attitudes towards teachers and public schools. But it gets really interesting, too, when we see this spillover effect, because we also asked them about their beliefs on local schools, how they trust their local teachers, and what they should get taught in school based on race and racism, and even these more almost grand level beliefs about how they trust teachers, like if they trust teachers to select additional curriculum and materials, and or if they believe we should even talk about fairness and equity in schools. And we also found this spillover effect where the more people reported hearing these narratives, the more likely they were to distrust their teachers, to talk about race and racism, to select additional materials, to disagree that schools should talk more about race and racism, even discuss controversial events. Just just seeing how this is really influencing our institutions. What I hear, because I'm a glass half empty kind of person, is that we should all be really, really worried, not just about the future of democracy, but about the future of democratic governance of our public schools, something that I personally treasure and talk about all the time as something that's really valuable and worth preserving. In fact, along with a bunch of colleagues, I just wrote a very spirited rejoinder to a piece in Ednext that speculated that locally elected school boards do more harm than good, that they're too subject to political capture, and that really we ought to do away with them. I'm one of the first to jump to the defense of locally elected boards and to say that, you know, people aren't stupid when people reflect on their own schools, that they're pretty resistant to these broader narratives about schools in general. And you're making me pretty sad. And so this is your chance to like, just really stuff my head under the ice or to say like, You've got it wrong. This isn't such a doom and gloom story. I don't think it's a doom and gloom story. I don't. While this is scary and while these parent groups, specifically some of these mom groups that we see on their right, are very loud and sometimes a little aggressive, I think it's probably just one last attempt to keep control, to keep the status quo the way that it is. But the good thing about locally elected school boards is that they are locally elected. If people who care about democracy and and public education can use these grassroots to start locally and make real change happen, then school boards are a great place, you know, to get started and to get your foot in the door. I think that we will see that. I think that there can be and and will be a concerted push against what we're seeing right now as people are learning more about it and just anecdotally, a lot of my friends and a lot of people I know are running for locally elected positions now because they see it as a way into real change. In fact, just as the anti-CRT narrative contained a call to action, Sandy says that the attacks on public schools and teachers are similarly mobilizing parents and community members to defend public education. It could really be that call to action. So instead of, there's a very powerful narrative. We're seeing this political narrative pick up, right? And it's evolving. We're seeing it not just be CRT. It's now talking about um, gender. We're now talking about my friends in Florida have just gone through trainings if they wanted to or were incentivized to on how to teach social studies differently. Like there's a lot coming around in this culture wars that we keep talking about. But there's still time for a counter narrative, right? There's midterm elections coming. There's time for people that are feeling that this doesn't actually reflect their reality of their schools to Mm -hmm. talk about what does. 
and maybe talk about why things that maybe aren't CRT, because CRT is a complex academic theory, but our diversity, equity, inclusion movements are helpful. How do they help children? How do they not harm children? How do they work um, to prevent harm to other children and maybe reframe that narrative in a way? Like this could be the call to action, but if, if there is no action, I might start to be more pessimistic. Ariel says that understanding exactly why the anti-CRT narrative has been so powerful is essential if we're going to come up with effective counter-narratives. This shows the power of like studying narratives and how we can use it for good in the future. I think we need to use this power responsibly to engage people as citizens and not just as individual identities that become pitted against one another. Mm -hmm. And I think that we could use this to develop a counter narrative that is not just about rallying the right against the left, but just developing a narrative that brings us together that is also motivating. Because I think in the end, you're right, this is going to just lead to disinvestments in public education, and which is going to be the self-fulfilling prophecy in public schools just getting worse, which I don't think is what anybody wants. Nobody wants our kids not to learn in schools and to not have good experiences. And I think generally people care about children, right? And that's what makes them such a easy victim to pick. So I think that using this for good into the future with a counter narrative is the way that we need to go. So I don't think a hope is lost. And I think that we can just take the lessons from this to move forward. It's just up to doing it. So what does all this mean for the future? Alas, our expert researchers are not in possession of a crystal ball. But their keen sense of narrative awareness does equip them to sense when a story starts to lose its power. That's something that Annie says may be happening as the anti-CRT narrative keeps expanding to encompass new enemies, generating unpleasant side effects along the way. I joined a Moms for Liberty Facebook group in Williamson County, Tennessee, and they're even kind of arguing over the same thing. Somebody posted a history lesson about Native Americans, and there was a big Facebook fight about half of the Moms for Liberty group saying, no, this is accurate. This is what we should be teaching our kids. And then half of them saying, no, they're teaching them that America, you know, is bad. So I, I think that as the list of grievances gets bigger, there is a risk of polarizing some people, even within the group. And I also think think that the fact that teachers are leaving the profession in droves is is making parents and, and other community members worried. And so that I think is a sign too that, that maybe this is not the way that things are going to be getting done. And so we can hopefully expect something different and, and better to happen for midterms. That was Annie Genster-Bloom, Ariel Bertrand, and Sandy Frost-Waldron, winners of our 2022 Have You Heard Graduate Student Research Contest. Congrats to all of them for claiming our top prize and for such amazing research. And Jack and I will be right back to talk about the kids these days and to reveal the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon subscribers. Here's a hint. Whether it's Republicans saying we should spend less on education because a lot of kids won't need it anyway, or Democrats saying that some kids are more deserving of coveted school slots than others, the meritocracy is getting increasingly brutal. If this intrigues you, just go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and become a supporter. So 
Jack, you made a comment earlier in the show about the kids these days don't want to feel like they have to cram themselves into boxes. And it made me think about an observation from dear friend of the show, Adam Latz, education historian and one of your many rivals. Not and, a rival. And uh, Adam Adam wrote about um, Kanawha, West Virginia in the 70s. And ostensibly the battle there was over textbooks, right? That that conservative parents were really unhappy about all the isms that they saw sneaking into the textbooks, feminism, multiculturalism, secular humanism. <laughs> but really what they were upset about was the kids these days, 70s version. So, you know, <laughs> we'd been through the turmoil of the 60s and, and Adam actually had a chance to talk to at least one of the parents and the real source of the unhappiness was what they saw as, you know, they were losing their grip on the kids and the kids were just, the kids were going bad. Their hair was long. They were engaged in public uh, displays of affection. They weren't respectful towards their elders. Some of them were smoking. And it just made me think that, you know, one, that things never change, but also, you know, like you can feel like any moment where the speed of cultural change sort of picks up pace that's where we see this intense backlash taking place. And and I feel like we are really on this collision course right now with, you know, like the kids don't want to be crammed into boxes. <laughs> I think that's a good point, Jennifer. Um, one of the things that we don't actually talk about very often is the fact that one of the major aims of schooling is social reproduction, right? For a lot of people, that sounds like a bad thing, Uh reproducing society exactly as it is. And I think because we don't really talk about it so often and because for many people it has a, a really negative connotation, um, we end up in this position where we're fighting over something and we're not exactly clear what the underlying cause of it is. And in this case, the underlying cause of it is that we disagree about the role of schools in reproducing society as we know it. And there are some people who believe strongly that things are just fine <laughs> and, uh, and that schools have a role to play in ensuring that life 10 years from now, 20 years from now, uh, you know, a couple generations from now, looks more or less like life today. And there are those who believe that schools should upend the social order. And I think that if we if we are able to talk about this conflict over the social reproduction of schools, then it makes a lot more sense that we're having this same fight over and over and over. One of the things that Adam likes to point to is the fight over progressivism in the early 20th century, right? That the progressive educator was a villain uh, akin to, you know, the groomer, today. And it's a little hard to imagine, especially those of us who have been trained in schools of education, right, where progressive educators are heroes. We're supposed to all sort of worship at the altar of people like John Dewey. And I'm thinking of something written by John Dewey's friend, George Counts, dare the schools build a new social order, right? Uh, and and it kind of doesn't matter what the substance of the book is. Now, you know, today, 100 years later, it seems uh, pretty bland compared to the way people talk about changing the social order these days. But again, if the argument is over 
reproducing society through schools, and that is a historic mission of education, right? There's no running from that. That has always been a part of what schools do. It's always been a part of what families want schools to do. Um, If if there's a disagreement about uh, what that role is, um, then, you know, you're going to run into these problems and it's going to be particularly difficult if you're not able to even talk about that disagreement. And I think, again, the fact that um, we we don't really uh, talk clearly about the many purposes of school. Um, and if we do, we often talk about, you know, getting a job. Uh, that That's to the detriment of the broader discussion that we ought to always be having about what the purpose of education is, especially since we're all going to disagree about it, right? And the only way that we're ever going to come to anything resembling a kind of working agreement is if we're able to talk about it. Isn't it funny how all of your solutions involve elevating the role of the education historian in society? It's that, <laughs> that's what you took from what I just said. <laughs> One of many things I took from what you just said, Jack. Okay, good. So, Jack, I know you have been waiting on tenterhooks to learn the topic of this episode's In the Weeds subject. Would you, you like me, me to so share? You know me so well, Jennifer. I, I do. So I picked something that I think you're actually going to be really interested in. I have noticed the return of what I think of as a kind of brutal meritocracy, a discourse of a brutal meritocracy. And on the right, it amounts to people basically saying, what do we need all these schools for? A whole bunch of kids aren't going to learn anything anyway. <laughs> And then there's a there's a liberal version of it, which is basically like, you know, let's make everybody compete for a few spots in a few selective schools and we will only judge them by merit. <laughs> so what do you say? Can we talk about it in the weeds? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, let me first remind our listeners that um, this is not a brutally meritocratic show. This is a... A, a warm, inviting, and democratic show that everybody uh, is welcome here and the cost of admission is nothing. Uh, in return, we just ask that you say nice things, right? If, if you like listening, then share that with people. Uh, we continue to grow at the snail's pace of a true grassroots operation. Uh, so give us a rating. Uh, make sure that you are subscribed so that the latest episode appears in your feed. Um, share your favorite episode or the latest episode on Twitter, tag the handle, uh, have you heard pod or, or just like text an episode to somebody, maybe they'll listen to it. Maybe they'll get wise. Maybe they'll join the community. They'll join the revolution. That's all I got. And if you do want to compete feverishly for a few elite spots, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and become a supporter just for a few dollars each month. You get elite status and you get to follow us into the weeds where today we, we will be discussing the brutal meritocracy. And uh, Jennifer, is it okay to say here, or should I say it in the weeds, that I'm going to do an AP in the weeds um, for folks who pass the, the first test? So um, we'll take it a, you know, a little bit further advanced and then people will get credit for that. On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. Thank you.